couldn't help noticing the, the music for meditation was as the deer panteth for water, so my, long, so my soul longs for you. The subtitle, uh, maybe you noticed, uh, for Psalm 22 is to the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. Suffering is a problem. Maybe the problem when it comes to faith. Now we're very well acquainted, painfully so, with many of the trouble spots around the world. We uh, recently came out of a pandemic. People are still getting sick, by the way. There's uh, the war in Ukraine. And, of course, we've seen the news lately of the fires in Maui. People are suffering around the world, and there seems to be no end in sight. Closer to home, of course, there's people dying on our streets all the time, homelessness. And unfortunately, I am confident that all of us in this room have dealt at some point with the death of a loved one or will soon have to do that. Many people, including the most devout, including pastors and biblical scholars, have given up their faith because of the problem of suffering. They ask, How can a good God exist in the face of ongoing, profound suffering? But let's not judge them. At one time or another, we all ask the same question. Why is this happening to me? When my mother found out she was dying of cancer, she declined aggressive treatments, saying, I've lived a good life. Amazingly, she was not bitter about her misfortune. Instead, she was grateful for the life that she had had. Let me pause for a moment. I know this, this message is a bit of a downer, at least at first. I promise you it will get better. But uh, let me pause for a moment and just say, life is uncertain, but in spite of that, it is still good while we have it. God meant for it to be good. In our focus on the problem of suffering, let's not forget the good. 
in the grand scheme of things, suffering is only a temporary setback. A couple of weeks after my mother received the bad news, and I was there in the uh, Spokane hospital room when she got the bad news, a couple of weeks later, my brother and I sat by her hospice bedside talking, sharing family memories, Our mother dozed off for a little bit into a state of semi-conscious, medicated sleep. And suddenly she moaned and cried out, Why? My brother Doug immediately exclaimed, Oh, Jesus asked the same question. It's true. On the cross, as he was about to die, Jesus cried out, why? He quoted the first line of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was this an admission of defeat? Was God really abandoning him? One of the most profound elements of the gospel is this. Jesus gained victory by being defeated. He won by losing. It's one of the most profound and sometimes difficult to understand truths of the gospel. But I ask you, what difference does that make to us? To answer that, let's take a closer look at Psalm 22. Now, this psalm has been called the fifth gospel account of the crucifixion. It's actually a prayer that Israelites recited as part of worship, and as you can tell, from the subheading of this psalm, it was sung. Have you ever prayed this kind of prayer? Have you ever sung this kind of song? Maybe you thought it was inappropriate. Maybe you thought you weren't supposed to be that negative. But maybe we should pay attention as we go through it we will see how appropriate it was for Jesus to invoke this psalm as he was dying. I invite you to follow along in your own Bible if you would like to. The words will be on the screen. Or if you wish, just bow with closed eyes and take in the pain and the artistry that is Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. I used to think that when New Testament writers quoted a text from the Old Testament, they were just picking out words that worked. But I've, I've learned that when a New Testament writer quotes a short passage, a quote, uh, quotes a short text, that they're actually invoking a memory. They're, they're invoking the entire passage. They're asking readers to remember this passage. And so we find that many times Psalm 22 is invoked in the New Testament. And we've already read one of those passages. Notice Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And now, notice Matthew 27, verses 39 and 42. This is in the account of Jesus' crucifixion. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Invoking Psalm 22. We continue with verse 9. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, and, and here David is not talking about literal bulls. He's talking about his enemies. 
Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And you lay me in the dust of death. Notice these next few verses. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my, my garments. Again, in the account of Jesus' crucifixion, John 19, 24, quotes the soldiers talking while Jesus is suffering on the cross, talking about his clothing, his robe. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes, clothes among them and cast my lots for my garment. Psalm 22:18. So this is what the soldiers did. Continuing with verse 19. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. The psalmist is praying now. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me, he pleads. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. The psalmist is pleading in words that Jesus invoked on the cross that other Bible writers use to describe what happened. The psalmist depicts his situation without hope. But verse 22 is the turning point. Psalm 22, 22, the turning point. I will declare your name to my people. Well, this seems to come out of the blue. <laughs> I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. That passage actually shows up or is invoked in the book of Hebrews. 
recall that Hebrews is all about how Christ and what he has done has superseded everything else. Hebrews 2, 11 to 12, says this. Both the one, talking about Jesus, who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. What an incredible way to explain the incarnation of the Son of God. So, the author concludes, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, and then he quotes this line from Psalm 22, verse 22, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. What an amazing use of that psalm to show how the Messiah came as one of us and suffered as one of us and as our brother sacrificed himself for us. Let's continue with Psalm 22, verse 25. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. That phrase, dominion belongs to the Lord, is important. When Jesus died on the cross, he became king, our king. Instead of being defeated, he was enthroned. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. What has he done? He has saved his people, called them brothers and sisters adopted them into his family. He has done it. He has become their king. Through suffering, he won the victory. Jesus said as he died, it is finished. He did it. It is done. We have to remember that. The victory is won. The war 
is over. All that is left is the mopping up afterwards, which will be completed at the second coming. In light of all this, I'd like to present three myths that we tell ourselves sometimes about suffering. Myth number one is suffering is a test from God to see if we're loyal to him. The truth is, suffering is not from God. Suffering is a common experience to all mortal human beings. It happens. It can test us, that is true, but God did not design the test. The second myth is this. God's anger made Jesus suffer. So his death satisfied God. This is, you know, that old uh, atonement theory where, you know, because Jesus shed his blood that, uh, you know, he appears before the Father and, and the Father says, yeah, because you shed your blood, I, you know, I'll, I'll forgive all these people, you know. It's, it's kind of like God is saying, well, you know, it's against my better judgment, but because you died, you know, I'm satisfied and, you know, we can forgive all these miserable humans. Actually, the truth is, God is not the cause of anyone's suffering, especially that of Jesus. And God himself loved the world so much that the part of him called the Son suffered and died for us. God was not satisfied God suffered for us. The third myth is that suffering is somehow evidence that a loving God does not exist. Oh yeah, there's that again. And there's no doubt that it is hard to explain the presence of ongoing, persistent suffering. It's hard for anybody. And it is, I submit, even harder to explain for someone who doesn't believe in God. You see, suffering is evidence that God's conflict with evil is not completely done yet. Now, here's a Here's an analogy that, it's kind of a weak analogy, but it it works to a certain extent. Athletes willingly suffer. Have you ever seen athletes do, you know, amazing things that actually cause themselves great pain and suffering? And they do this for a purpose. Every year I I love watching the Tour de France. And um, (laughs) every year I hear the commentators say something like, oh, he's really suffering now. And it's, it's usually when they're, you know, <laughs> climbing a hill and, and, you know, racing the clock and racing each other and just pouring out every ounce of, 
willpower and energy that they have, and they clearly are suffering, and they're doing it willingly. They want to be there doing it. There's, anywhere else in the world they want to be, but they want to be right there. Why? Because they have a chance to win. In other words, they may have great suffering, but it has meaning. There's a meaning to the, to the suffering. It means that maybe they'll get on the podium. It means that maybe they'll get fame and fortune. And yes, those are all worldly motivations. But the analogy here is that suffering all by itself is not really the issue here. It's suffering without meaning that is the real problem. Now, here's the thing. Friends of God suffer. That's true. But people who don't know God suffer also. Suffering is one of those kind of equal opportunity. Now, we've all known people who, you know, seem to lead a charmed life and, you know, everything goes well for them. But, you know, just remember, we're looking on the outside. And, you know, things are not always well on the inside. And we're all mortal. This all, you know, unless Jesus comes first, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be lying in the dust. I'm sorry, but that's just human existence. And so just getting God out of the picture doesn't solve the problem of suffering. In fact, getting God out of the picture removes any possibility of meaning to the suffering. Because if suffering is just, you know, like everything else in the universe, just, uh, you know, random chance, then, you know, my ideas about suffering don't really mean anything either. And uh, removing God from the picture does not remove suffering. Instead, it makes it worse because it removes meaning. by Jesus' suffering and death. We find victory in his defeat, apparent defeat. And we find meaning for our own lives. What kind of meaning? Well, first of all, we know that suffering is always temporary. Victory is coming. Uh, let me add just, a, just an aside that I can't resist because I did a lot of research on this in, <laughs> at La Sierra at one time. Uh, you know, the, the idea of hell is so repugnant and so opposite of the character of God. Do you ever realize that? That, that God is all about ending suffering, but to believe in an ever-burning hell is to believe in a God that perpetuates suffering for eternity. Anyway, just an aside. <laughs> Secondly, suffering can, if we find the right meaning, bring us closer to God. 
and each other. But, and I hasten to emphasize, I hasten to, to say this and to emphasize it, God did not cause the suffering. So God is not giving us suffering so that, you know, we can be closer to him. Have you ever gone to a, uh, a, a memorial service, a funeral, or the deathbed of a loved one? And have you ever suddenly discovered a connection, not only with them, but with the rest of the family and friends that was so wonderful that you went away saying, you know, it's too bad that we have to wait for a death in order for this gathering to happen. Uh, I have seen that happen over and over again. That, that suffering, you know, whether it's the the dying person suffering or the people who have to witness that, uh, this suffering can actually bring people closer together and closer to God. It doesn't mean that God caused it. It doesn't mean that that's why God, you know, gave us suffering so that we'll be closer to him. It's, shall we say, God bringing good out of evil because God is like that. God's grace is sufficient, said the Apostle Paul. And then number three, suffering reminds us that Jesus, oh, Jesus, he, he really needs to come back. And we want him to come back and put things right. The good news is he won the victory over evil, suffering, and death. He did that already. So, our victory, even when we're in the midst of suffering, is guaranteed. Praise God Almighty and his Son, Jesus Christ.